Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Ulysses Terrassa, journalist for the San Francisco Examiner, and Dr. Roy F. Baumeister, professor of psychology, Case Western Reserve University, discuss the origins of evil and why it exists. We hope you enjoy today's podcast, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Well, since we're here to talk about evil, um, let's start with the terms and why we're doing it. Um, Evil is pretty much thought of as sort of a theological concept and a theological question. Why would a social psychologist be interested in that concept? Well, it's one of, it, it corresponds to something that's very common in human experience. I mean, yes, the theologians and philosophers of others have, have tackled it and put uh, their view sometimes with uh, spectacular or supernatural uh, aspects to it. But it's rooted in very common experiences. Why do bad things happen to me? Uh, why did my child die? Why did the storm blow down my house? Why did soldiers come and uh, uh, kill my family? Um, things like that, that uh, people, that's when people need answers. That's when they have a, an enhanced need for meaning when they suffer. Uh, so when bad things happen, people look for a bad cause, and that's where the idea of evil originates. And the idea seems to have popped up uh, in all cultures, or in the majority of them, in, certainly in widely different ones, in fairly similar shape uh, as to what it means by evil. It's harming other people uh, without any good reason, uh, often for the fun of it, out of, out of malice. Uh, so uh, there's something, to me, that says there's something fairly universal in human experience in terms of the suffering and the desire to explain suffering. And that's where social psychology comes in, in the course of normal experience, what are these general principles that, that we respond to? So for me, in, in the question of what, what is evil, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not trying to write a discourse on the nature of Satan or anything like that. I want to understand it in psychological terms. Uh, what is the cause of violence and cruelty? Uh, what makes people do things that other people see as evil? Well, that brings up what kinds of people do evil things or violent things or harmful things to people. What's the kind of person that we're talking about? Is it a lot of people seem to think it's uh, or say that uh, people with low self-esteem are the kind of people that do harmful or bad things in society? What's your view? Well, you've certainly articulated uh, a big thing I've struggled with. The low self-esteem view is widely repeated uh, in psychology and and through the general culture. Uh, how it originated, I wasn't able to track down, and and how it got sustained is an even bigger mystery to me because. I can make out no evidence in support of it at all. I've gone through hundreds of studies of uh, everything from rapists in prison to uh, international terrorists, and uh, evidence that any of these people had low self-esteem is, is, is almost completely lacking. If anything, they seem to have very favorable views of themselves. They think to th seem, in the majority of cases, to think they're better than others, that they're special, that they uh, are entitled to uh, preferential treatment. Um, so I grappled long and hard with the low self-esteem view, and I've become convinced that it's, it's completely wrong. Um, now, this is just one aspect of, what, of your question of what kind of people uh, perform violent and cruel and evil acts. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, what the evidence shows, what the way the evidence shows is that it's, it's an egotism. It's a threatened egotism. I like the term threatened egotism uh, because it implies, on the one hand, high self-esteem, um, thinking you're better than others, believing you're superior, wanting uh, to uh, uh, think that you're better than others. Um, it couples that with also the idea that somebody else has threatened that or questioned that or challenged that. Because people who simply have a, a very favorable opinion of themselves, um, secure, confident, by the same token, conceited, arrogant people, they don't automatically just go around being mean to everyone. They don't go around per, uh, inflicting uh, acts of violence. They turn violent when other people question it and say, well, you're not so hot. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them really hate hearing uh, uh, that they're not as good as they think. Um, and so they lash out, and they lash out specifically at the person who attacked them. Uh, this seemed to be the gist uh, when I wrote the book and summarized uh, uh, the, the way to the literature. Uh, since then, Brad Bushman and I have done some laboratory tests of it because uh, that was missing from the uh, um, from the, the mass of evidence. 
and came to exactly the same conclusion. Hmm. Uh, it's these people with these inflated views of themselves. Uh, narcissism is the, the, the technical term in psychology. People with high narcissism, believing you're superior, wanting to be superior, having this inflated view of yourself, and then having somebody else criticize you, insult you, put you down, show disrespect. Uh, what we found is that we measured people's response to that in terms of how aggressively they behaved. The narcissists who were criticized, uh, who somebody said something negative to them, mm -hmm. they were by far the most aggressive in response. And they were only aggressive to the person who had criticized them. They were not even the same narcissism and the same criticism. They were not aggressive to a third person. Mm -hmm. So, again, the, the threatened egotism view, this belief that you're better than others, uh, coupled with somebody questioning that. And uh, again, it goes against the conventional wisdom, but uh, what I tell people often is to think back to the obnoxious, malicious, cruel, exploitative people that you have known personally. Uh, did they have low self-esteem? And most people, when they think of a particular one, then this general view of low self-esteem say, no, that was a really conceited such and such. Uh, he thought he was better than the rest of us. And he especially, he or she, but uh, violence is more male, uh, he especially uh, tended to turn nasty when someone criticized him or challenged him or questioned him or threatened that view. So it's sort of bursting the bubble of self-love that makes these people turn uh, turn nasty. Mm -hmm. That's then one key answer, one type of person uh, who who tends to uh, perform this sort of act. That's, that's the most common. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say either that um, high self-esteem in general uh, is conducive to violence. Uh, high self-esteem is, is a mixed category. There are several different kinds of people. Uh, some people who are just sort of comfortably secure in their achievements and uh, almost impervious to what the world thinks. Well, they're not violent, and, and why should they be? Uh, they're sort of floating through life on a cloud of their own wonderfulness. Uh, you know, what's to get upset about? Mm -hmm. uh, but there are other people who have the same belief that they're great, but they rely on getting constant validation from others, or their self-esteem does fluctuate a little bit in, in response to events. And those are the ones who are really invested in believing they're superior, but it is vulnerable. Uh, other people can question it or challenge it. And those are the ones who turn most violent and aggressive and nasty. People with low self-esteem tend to fall in between those extremes. Uh -huh. So this is uh, the majority of people you find are in this uh, unstable self-esteem region? That's the largest group. Are there other, pe are there other types? Uh, among of violent people? perpetrators, yes. Because uh -huh. um, when we're talking about evil, I, I think also about just raw, unmitigated, um, pleasure-seeking evil, you know, sadism, things like that. Is that is that a myth? Is sadism really not that, uh, is it not pleasurable to see other people suffer, or is it? Well, you know, see, that's, that's a great challenge, too, and that was one thing I uh, spent a long time trying to find out about. Uh, hardly any people say that they are sadistic and they got pleasure from taking people apart. There, there are a few quotations from uh, serial murderers and so on that say they enjoyed it, but mm -hmm. those people may be mentally ill we'd consider them exceptional cases. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, in group perpetrators or large-scale acts of violence, although the people writing their memoirs didn't, didn't say they enjoyed it, they usually said it was disgusting and it, uh, upsetting and so on, mm -hmm. they usually say, but there were a couple others I saw who grew to enjoy it over time and seemed to be almost addicted to it and took pleasure in in tormenting the victims and, and so on. Uh, there are too many reports like that to ignore. Um, there's also the matter, victims talk about that a lot. It's in your perception of evil, especially when people are doing things to you, that's something they all feature or they, they place a lot of emphasis on it. They were laughing while they were beating us and shooting us and they enjoyed it and they made games out of it and so on. The victims feature that. It's it's part of our, our myth of evil, our prototype of somebody who enjoys it. Uh -huh. uh, going back even at least to uh, Christian ideas of Satan who, uh, who you know, just did evil for the fun of it and got a kick out of it. Um, but there is some foundation, I think, in reality. On the other hand, it's clear that uh, when people first perform acts of violence, it's usually very upsetting to them, and not even necessarily in a moral sense. It's just sort of physically disgusting. The, uh, um, all the, the guards who uh, took part in, uh, uh, in say, the, the, the massacres in World War II of, of civilians and uh, innocent uh, people, the, uh, the Jews, the, uh, uh, the people who took part in the uh, communist purges and, and so on, uh, 
Uh, a lot of them talk about how distressing and sort of at a gut level, you know, that they they had to vomit and, and they had nightmares and anxiety attacks. It's, it's extremely upsetting. Uh, and even today in our country when policemen first shoot somebody on the on the job in the line of duty, mm -hmm. uh, their policy is now that you want to get that person into counseling because a fair number of them will have fairly upset reactions. And, you know, you're doing your job, you're supposed to, you're protecting other people, mm -hmm. and yet it's still upsetting to inflict harm on another human being. Putting these all together, uh, I sort of came up with the conclusion that there is such a thing as sadism, but it's a small minority uh, of the acts of evil and violence, uh, and it's a case of something that you gradually have to learn. Uh, in psychology, we have something uh, called the opponent process theory. At, uh, uh, what's called his name Solomon uh, uh, developed some years ago. Um, in thinking about things like addiction, it's based on homeostasis. You know, the body tends to keep a stable uh, condition, and mm -hmm. the the psyche does too. So, you know, if you run up a flight of stairs, your heart starts beating faster. Well, it doesn't go on beating faster for the rest of your life. Uh, it calms down again. Yeah. Uh, so what he says is that the body has all these opposing mechanisms. One speeds up your heart when you're running up the flight of stairs, another then kicks in and slows it down afterwards to get it back to its baseline. And he says over time, if you run up and down stairs every day, over time, the first process that speeds it up will seem to get weaker, and you run up stairs every day, after a while your heart won't beat, beat as hard from it as the first time you do it. Mm -hmm. um, and the B process that calms it down, the opponent process, gets more efficient, stronger, more effective. Uh, with drug addiction, uh, you get the first strong reaction, the high, and then afterwards you don't stay high for the rest of your life. Your body, in response, brings a real downer in response, a hangover, a depression. Uh, you know, People feel bad when they're coming off it, which is then why they want to go back and get another dose. Mm -hmm. The problem that they get caught up in is that over time, the high gets weaker, the hangover, the negative reaction gets stronger. So you need stronger doses, you need more doses, and the, uh, the, the lows get worse. Well, violence is kind of the opposite because the initial reaction is the negative one. And so you do something that makes you upset or disgusted, but you're not going to have that awful feeling for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So that there will be a positive, pleasant experience that will recover from that. Uh, I suppose you can make the example to um, bungee jumping or hang gliding or something where fear of falling is one of the most basic fears that we have. It's, it's scary. It's bad. Uh, and yet... Uh, the backwash is this euphoric pleasure that you get from it, and over time, as you continue to do these jumps, the fear gets weaker, whereas the, the response, the, uh, the backwash, the opponent process, the euphoria in that case gets more pleasant. Well, that could be what's going on with cruelty, with uh, inflicting acts of violence on other people. Initially, you have this very upset reaction, and it makes you sick, and it's gross, and disgusting, and unpleasant. Uh, and your body struggles to get over it and get it back to normal. Um, over time, uh, the getting back to normal, which is a, then you know a euphoric, pleasant sort of thing, that gets stronger, and the initial negative reaction would get easier. So people over time can learn uh, to get pleasure out of that. And whether it's hunting or watching violent movies, they would have analogies to things that would go on in everyday life that many of us may have experienced. Uh, or, you know, the first time you might see blood on TV, uh, which in, in our culture would come very early in life, yeah. but it still might be uh, upsetting. Over time, that will get less in the, uh, the positive response. And so people spend lots of money all the time to watch these violent and upsetting films uh, because, again, the, black, the backwash, the opponent process, is positive. Now that raises the question of why don't most people have this? Well, I think most people could have this reaction, but most people, because of socialization and because of guilt, don't let themselves admit that they enjoyed it or that they, they were starting to be something pleasant about it. Mm -hmm. But people with a little bit less of a conscience, a little bit less of saying, I shouldn't be enjoying someone else's suffering, uh, it's okay to torture these people or to kill them or whatever. Uh, if that's okay, then they could let themselves essentially be seduced by the opponent process, by the rising pleasure in inflicting harm on others. And, and some of them do say, uh, indeed, that it feels like an addiction. I have comments from torturers, comments from rapists, comments from others, uh, even uh, people doing uh, mass killings and various things, that it starts to become intoxicating, and uh, they, they, they speak of it as if it were an addiction. Mm -hmm. So there is something to that.
I think there is something to that. Again, mm -hmm. we're talking about a small minority of people yeah. and a small minority of the acts of violence. Now, from the victim's point of, victim's point of view, if you fall into the hands of one of these people, you're really worst off because they will uh, not only mistreat you, they will take pleasure in doing so. Um, other people do violence mm -hmm. just as a means to an end. You know, if the person wants your money, you can make a deal. You can give him your money, and he's not going to shoot you or break your uh, bones or things like that in most cases. Mm -hmm. uh, we fall into the hands of a sadist. He wants you to suffer, and he gets pleasure out of it. Uh, so you're, you're much worse off. There's, there's, there's no making a deal yeah. in that case. But still, of the major roots of evil, that would be by far the smallest, uh, the responsible for the smallest number of cases. Uh, they're much exaggerated mm -hmm. in the victim's eyes. If you start, say, watching B-movies, the bad guys, usually the main bad guy or people working for them, there are some sadists who just get pleasure out of out of inflicting harm. So it, it is a big part of our image of evil. Yeah. Uh, but that's out of proportion to the reality. Hmm. Well, when you're looking at this question, did you find any genetic or biological basis uh, involved in evil doing or ev uh, people who are evil or enjoy evil? Did you ever find any? Well, um, that was not the focus of it. Uh, there is some <clears throat> biological basis. Now, there, there's been a quest for genetic markers, you know, genetic patterns that will make people into criminals or violent people. Mm -hmm. uh, for a while there was the thing like the XYY chromosome, that having the double, the Y being the male chromosome. That that was. But those things in general have not panned out very well. There have been exciting initial findings that make the news and so on. And then mm -hmm. when they do the more extensive follow-up, uh, then it turns not to work. Uh, on the other hand, there is one that's worked very well, that's bigger effect than any of those, uh, that's been very consistently found, and that's being male. Uh, and it's clearly biological as to whether you're male or female. Yeah. Uh, and very consistently, men commit, well, it depends on what your measure is, but let's say eight or nine times as many acts of violence as women. Um, uh, it's no accident that uh, uh, armies throughout the history of the world have mainly been staffed by uh, young men, um, that uh, troublemakers and uh, people who get into fights and arguments and break things and so on tend to be young men. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I don't want to say it doesn't exist in women, it does, and, but women's violence tends to be more within the family, uh, domestic violence. Women will beat their children and their parents, a small minority of them, and their husbands and so on, but they don't get into fights with strangers. Uh, they don't uh, get into violence. They don't go out looking for trouble. Other way, a fair number of young men do. So genetically, we're probably never going to find a bigger marker than male versus female. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that tells us a lot about genetic things, because of course most males are not violent and not violent criminals and, and so on, mm -hmm. um, which means that the genetic thing is just sort of a crude uh, initial start. Uh, to me, the evidence, I think it's probably true that there is some kind of aggressive energy, some kind of innate biological heritage. Uh, I don't know if we want to use uh, the term an instinct that uh, Freud and Lorenz and others have failed, but favored, but, uh, but something like that that is stronger, that males have a bigger dose of that than females. It's just hard to argue that that's culture or socialization or, or anything like that. Even just watching children play at a very early age, uh, you'll see the boys doing a lot more rough and tumble things uh, than girls do. So. There may be something there, but to transfer that sort of natural genetic foundation into committing acts of violence and evil, that takes a lot more. There have to be uh, cultural and social things too. So the, mm -hmm. the combination of the biological and uh, the cultural probably is necessary to come up with any sort of adequate explanation of, of evil and violence. Okay. Um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. I want to go back to it. Um, the idea of the perpetrator and the victim, and how there sometimes there are sort of different views about what's going on in these e in these evil scenarios um, that are scenarios that are picked out as examples of evil, uh, and you've looked at it from both both points of view, I think. Yes. Uh, so my own research actually tried to compare victim and perpetrator scenarios more for everyday kinds of uh, uh, transgressions than. Uh, than major crimes or murders or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but victims and perpetrators do seem to see things in systematically different ways. Uh, and that presents a challenge for anybody who wants to understand evil, because we start, it's defined really by the victim's reaction. Mm -hmm. Most perpetrators don't see what they're doing as evil. 
sometimes they say, well, what I did was a little wrong, or I overreacted, or yeah. maybe I shouldn't have done that. But they see maybe they got carried away and took a step or two farther than they should. Uh, some of them see what they're doing as perfectly right and justified. Sometimes some of them see what they're doing as positively good. So evil is defined by the victim's reaction. Uh, and so the, the challenge then for the scholar is to take something defined by the victim's perspective, and then you have to distance yourself from the victim and look at the perpetrator's perspective and understand, because the, the victim view is so biasing. Victims see things in absolute moral categories that this is totally wrong. Yeah. Victims tend not to see uh, any valid reason. Perpetrators often, sometimes they say, uh, they're not sure why I did it, but they usually have some explanation for what I was trying to do this, or I meant to do this, or this was my, my point. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the victim account is, there was no reason for him to do that. You can see this even in traffic, you know. Yeah. person cut in front of me, there was no reason for him to cut right there. There was all this other room. And, you know, if you asked him, ask the other driver, he'd say, well, I was just being evil, and there was a reason. <laughs> I was concerned there might be something else, or I did this at this time. or uh, uh, So... Um, Perpetrators have explanations. Uh, they see things as terms of mix, that maybe what I did was a little wrong, but mm -hmm. what the other person, the victim, did, that was a little wrong too, or he provoked me, or I was just responding to it, or I meant this, I was misunderstood. Um, is this like terrorism is, kind of falls into this category? Uh, terrorists, yes. Uh, they're one of our images of, of evil, and yet terrorists mm -hmm. don't see themselves as terrorists even. They prefer labels of freedom fighter and, and so on. They say, yes, I planted the bomb, but there was no other way to get attention to our cause and to uh, let the world know of the injustices that the people I represent have suffered. And uh, so they see it as a kind of last resort of, again, trying to pursue some positive or idealistic uh, goal, uh, admittedly by desperate means and means that don't really ever work very well. I mean, terrorism has rarely accomplished uh, its ends. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, they, they see it as having a positive purpose and, and one that the victims will see as you know, just totally pointless. Why would you plant a bomb in a, on a bus or in a marketplace where uh, innocent people who are just trying to feed their families are going to get blown up? You know, they're not oppressing you. Right. But uh, the perpetrators see, they think there is a need and they have it explained and they understand. So they don't see, I just randomly doing something evil. Mm -hmm. um, so there are many of these mm -hmm. gaps between victim and perpetrator and how they see things. Yeah, um, one of them is has to do with time frame, doesn't it? Yes, that's another important one. Mm -hmm. uh, victims have a much longer time frame. Uh, even in our study, which was dealing with everyday transgressions, mm -hmm. to describe somebody did something to make you mad or describe something that you did that made somebody else mad. So you were the victim or the perpetrator. Yeah. The perpetrators would basically describe that day, you know, what happened. The victims would describe events leading up to it, describe then the episode itself, describe the consequences, and with, uh, you know, lasting things even in the present, that uh, after this I was never able to trust my cousin again, or uh, I uh, got rid of that roommate, or, you know, lasting things I was never able to uh, uh, recover from this or replace what that person broke. So the victims tend to see long-term consequences lasting to the present and extending in the future. Uh, the perpetrators, we, we call it temporal bracketing, as in bracketing things off in time, mm -hmm. uh, that they would just describe that incident. They would describe, I did something wrong. Often they would then draw a line and say, but that was back then and that has no relation to what I'm like now. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd say, if they referred to the present, that was to say that there were no consequences, that uh, the person and I recovered from it and we're even better friends now than we were before I did that, uh, or that uh, times are, have changed now. And you can see this, this kind of time perspective difference in... in uh, uh, real perpetrators and victims in the world um, in, in many different spheres. You can see the victims still maintaining a grievance long after the perpetrators think uh, uh, that's a dead issue and, and so on, whether uh -huh. we're talking about uh, the Jews and the Germans, uh, where, you know, in which, uh, come on, it was more than half a century ago and uh, all those people pretty much are dead and uh, we don't believe that now and we're trying to be good to everyone. Was, uh, Never forget would be the uh, the motto of the Jews remembering it today. Uh, slavery in the United States, uh, you know, and the government and white people would say, you know, we never owned slaves and we're not descended from people who owned slaves and uh, we never approved of it and so on. Whereas mm -hmm. black people would st still see that as having a grievance and being relevant to today. Um, 
one that struck me was even the Crusades. I mean, talk about something that really should be ancient <laughs> history. Uh, and, um, you know, the Christian histories of the Crusades talk about, you know, the 11th and 12th century. And there were these positive, uh, idealistic reasons to go and fight to reclaim the Holy Land. And then the consequences were a sort of cultural cross-fertilization and improved trade. And, and then all that, too, is sort of gone in the sands of time. So this is all ancient history over and done. Uh, but while I was doing this, a book came out, uh, The Crusades Through Arab Eyes, appeared in English translation, uh -huh. which is from the other side. Yeah. And it was surprising how different it was from the victim's point of view. First of all, they, they didn't see all the positive idealistic motives for it. They basically said, we were minding our own business. We had our culture and our civilization down there. And suddenly all these nasty Europeans came down and burned and uh, looted and destroyed things and attacked and conquered. and performed atrocities and they those are much more salient to them mm -hmm. uh, and then in terms of the consequences they said it's still very relevant today he said that's if you want to understand relations between the Arab world and the West uh, whether it's oil embargoes or terrorism or whatever you, you have to understand they still look at the West through this memory of unprovoked invasion and atrocity uh, they still think of uh, the European and the Western world as uh, the sorts of people who just come down and do horrible things. And they say, with, with some justification, it, it didn't have good consequences for us. The, the Arab world was having uh, cultural flowering at that point, uh, which very much came to the end uh, in, in response to it. I mean, historically, to reconstruct exactly what the causes were, sort of my take on it is that the invading Christians were so nasty and, and brutal that Eventually, the, the only way the Arabs could kick them out was to be, uh, escalate to a, a comparable level of brutality. And the, uh, uh, the, the Mamluks and the, the Egyptian rulers who, who finally wiped out the last vestiges of the Christian stronghold in the Middle East uh, were exceptionally violent and brutal. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, uh, uh, in any case, the, the, uh, the intellectual and cultural period uh, that uh, had been sort of renaissance for them came to an end. So they see lasting negative cultural consequences, and they see it as a grievance that's still very relevant to the world today, whereas we would mm. not see that. So again, victims and perpetrators seeing things widely differently. And if you want to understand the perpetrators, you almost have to distance yourself from the victim point of view, because there's such a tendency to feel sorry for the victim and these poor people who suffered. Uh, and, and we should, you know, morally, we have to appreciate what victims suffered. Uh, to make a moral judgment, but a psychological understanding is somewhat at odds with that. Uh, and this is a debate that many people who write about evil struggle with, is that uh, extensive writings on the Holocaust, for example, uh, to explain it in psychological terms is somehow to, to trivialize it or to do something they don't want to see done, and that's, again, to lose the moral force of condemnation. And I think that's not just a style of speech, that that's quite legitimately true. We need if we want to understand it, we need to distance ourselves from the victim's point of view. I guess another theme that came increasingly apparent to me there is, a, is what I call the magnitude gap. Mm. Uh, and that's just not, a, not, or not just a matter of perception. That's even in reality, the victim loses more than the perpetrator gains. Mm. We saw this even in the everyday uh, transgressions that uh, you know we studied in... Uh, uh, some of my studies here, uh, but even in much bigger crimes too. I mean, think of of rape or murder or, or uh, you know serious crimes where people are are uh, traumatized for a long time or even their life has ended. Uh, what the perpetrator gains is not equal to that. I mean, take take a rape or child abuse or something like that. Even if the perpetrator does get a few moments of pleasure out of it, it's quickly gone. Whereas the victim will suffer distress and cost for a lasting period of time. Whatever you get out of killing someone cannot possibly add up to what that person loses by being killed. Yeah. Uh, it's true even in, in robbery that the value of the stolen goods uh, <coughs> are much less to the perpetrator than what the victim loses. I mean, there's the insurance issue and so on, but uh, even there, insurance has to buy you a new one, uh, and so somebody has to come up with money to pay for the whole cost of a new TV Mm -hmm. Whereas what the uh, guy who broke into your house can sell a used, stolen TV for is far less than that. Uh, so value is lost. Evil, in a sense, is sort of like a tax <laughs> that uh, <laughs> takes part of the value uh -huh. out of the item in the, in the transaction. And 
So for victims and perpetrators really to resolve this, to come to a common understanding, um, is, is going to be almost impossible. It's going to confront a fairly insurmountable barrier that what the one loses is less than what the other one gains. Uh, it's why those feuds are so hard to settle, uh -huh. uh, because uh, each one sees what he suffered as much more than what he did in return. Um, and again, it brings back the moral issue. Uh, if you want to understand mass murders, whether Yugoslavia or Rwanda, mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, the great crimes earlier in the century, the, the purges and the, the Holocaust. Again, what the benefits were to the perpetrators were much smaller. So if we want to understand the psychology of the perpetrators, we have to sort of make the heartbreaking decision to view the victim's suffering in a, as much smaller than it really was to the victim, because that's how the perpetrators see it. Mm -hmm. um, good example in the mass killings, uh, at the end of the day, they don't know, you know, the average guy with the, the gun or the machete or whatever, you won't know if he's killed 20 or 25 uh, people. Yeah. Uh, you just sort of lose count and it's, uh, you know, you know that you killed, but uh, there's no motive and one or two one way or the other, I doubt that you'd feel much differently coming home from a day in the killing fields, whether you killed 22 or 26 people. Uh, and yet, of course, to the other four, it's, it's, uh, it's totally different. Yeah. Uh, so what it means to the perpetrator is much smaller. And the psychology of the perpetrator, we don't want to condone it, mm -hmm. but we want to understand that these things mean a whole lot less. Uh, and so when we ask the basic question we start with in, in understanding evil, why could people do these things? We were always asking it from the victim's perspective, how could you do such a horrible thing? Uh, and we sort of have to realize that to the person doing it, it's often not nearly as horrible as it was to the victim, or as it, as it would be to the bystander who, I think, naturally empathizes with the victim and sees from the victim's point of view. How could you kill thousands or millions of people? Well. It is horrible when you think of it like that, but they weren't thinking of it like that when they were doing it. It seemed a, a smaller issue. Yeah. It's such a matter of perspective and where you're sitting on this question of evil. And yes. it seems very elastic. Um, is there, I mean, is it possible that you and I, in our lives, that we think of as perfectly normal, will be seen in, by someone else or at some other time as having elements of evil or we are us being evildoers, even as we have our... That, that's a good point, and I think so. Uh, my colleague Diane Tice brought that up when I was working on it, that future generations, their idea of evil will probably be all of us, because when the oil is gone and the water is polluted and the planet is, uh, even before it's totally gone, just when it's very rare and expensive and clean air and water and good food and, and energy are hard to come by, mm -hmm. they'll say, oh, those pigs in the, uh, you know, the end of the 20th century, uh, they would just uh, get in their car and drive to the uh, corner uh, to buy a loaf of bread and use up all that energy, that fossil fuel, for thousands of years. Uh, they would leave their lights on and their TVs on when they weren't even in the room and just waste energy. They would they would pollute heedlessly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, you and I, we recycle and we're trying to do some things for the planet, but uh, uh, face it, we're not conserving in a fanatical way. We're not conserving at the rate that at some point future generations will wish that we did. Uh, uh, it's sort of, it is a finite quantity and uh, we'll run out and uh, people will look back on this time, I think, and say that, uh, boy, those people were evil. Uh, um, so, yes, it is very much and uh, even people who believe ourselves to be well-intentioned and decent and so on mm -hmm. um, can, be, can be accused of things and that's uh, it may surprise us to apply that to ourselves, but that is a surprise that afflicts many perpetrators mm -hmm. uh, who uh, thought they were fighting for a good cause and, and so on. Again, looking back, stay on the, the Stalinist purges, where uh, 20 million or more people were killed. Lots of people took part in that and carried it out. They thought they were doing good. Uh, at least they, they had that faith, and many of them um, sustained themselves through the difficulty of... Um, inflicting harm on their fellow citizens uh, by the belief that this was necessary for our country, uh, for building a good future, uh, for achieving this ideal utopian society, which, which we now sort of lose sight of, but that's what communism believed in, that everyone was going to be equal, take care of everyone else, 
You wouldn't even need a government. Mm -hmm. <coughs> no one would exploit anyone else. Um, many Westerners in the, sort of the 20s and 30s, my Western intellectuals, when they converted to communism, uh, they'd say things like, well, these are the values I was taught in Sunday school and uh, in my uh, you know, Presbyterian church back in, uh, back in Ohio or wherever I grew up. Mm -hmm. The communists are uh, making these real, that they're all going to share equally. And just like Jesus and the, uh, uh, his disciples owned things in common and uh, took care of each other and uh, didn't put one above the other, that's what they're going to do in this whole society. And Russia is going to be, uh, they thought, this... Uh, the Soviet Union going to be this workers' paradise on earth? Well, didn't work out that way. There were some serious flaws in their plan, uh, and a great deal of bloodshed and poverty and misery uh, followed from it. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there were very positive ideals motivating it. Mm -hmm. uh, other great crimes of the 20th century, the same thing. They often had this utopian view. The Chinese uh, Cultural Revolution is probably. Are they, they and the Russians keep digging up more bodies, and uh, I'm not sure in the latest count who has killed the most, but uh, the Cultural Revolution in China and the uh, Soviet Revolution and, and purges in Russia, those are two, clearly the, the two biggest uh, body counts, and both motivated by these very positive communist ideas. Cambodia, I guess, beat their record in terms of the proportion of their population they killed. Mm -hmm. um, that was just a horrible thing. But again, this utopian vision of wanting to restore the glory of our society, uh, make people, make it self-sufficient, get rid of the foreigners who are exploiting people, make everyone equal, uh, and, and so on. They had this, this vision. To us, it looks like a really stupid and warped vision, and what were they thinking? But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a bunch of uh, kind of sophomore-level educated uh, um, communists who imbibed a lot of rhetoric and lived out in the jungle for a long time, it's not surprising that their their view of how to run a modern society <laughs> would be a little bit warped. Uh, and and so they ended up perform, perpetrating a great deal of harm. Uh, the Nazis, too, were probably our, our epitome of our view of evil uh, in the 20th century. They, too, had this dream of, a, of an ideal society where people would be virtuous and good and would take care of each other. Uh, and uh, they uh, we're very big on family values and small businesses and lots of things we approve of. Mm -hmm. uh, they just thought somehow we have to get rid of the people who will mess up our utopia. Uh, and first that meant kind of shifting them out and stripping them of civil rights, and, and then it sort of evolved into uh, killing them. But uh, and, and again, not to undermine the awfulness and the, the, the moral total unacceptability of what they did, uh, our, our judgment is, is correct that, that this is totally evil. But again, to understand the perpetrators, they were, many of them, working on a very positive utopian view. They thought they were doing good, and mm. that, in some ways, is the, the, the tragedy. I mean, that's another of the roots of evil. We talked about threatened egotism. We talked about sadism. The idealism, in some ways, is the saddest and the most tragic, because mm. people believe they're doing good and that they need to use violence as a tool to bring about the good that they're seeking. Yeah. We don't see as much of that in the United States. Uh, but I think maybe the violence at the abortion clinics that's been a problem the last couple of decades, mm -hmm. that's a good example of this kind of thing. That, Of course, you plant a bomb in there and uh, uh, a physician and a receptionist and one or two patients maybe are killed. Um, well, of course, that's totally wrong and unacceptable. To the mind of the perpetrator who's doing it, though, he sees what's going on there as evil. He sees himself as fighting for good. We need to stop what he sees as the murder of babies. Uh, and planting the bomb is the way to do it. And so uh, they end up doing evil, although in their mind it's in the pursuit of good. And that's the uh, 20th century doesn't have a monopoly of that. Uh, we certainly have a bigger body count in the service of that than any <laughs> other. Uh, but that's been throughout the ages and all the religious wars uh, that have been fought and uh, people have been uh, tortured and killed and, and brutalized uh, in the service of religion. Um, whether you uh, believe in Jesus or not, uh, if he were to show up on the planet today and read through the history books and see all the blood that's been shed in the name, you know, by people who were thought they were carrying out his wishes, yeah. he would just certainly be horrified. Uh, whether you believe he's man or God, I, I, there's no questioning. He would just be 
shocked and, and appalled by that. And, um, and Christianity has no monopoly on, on violence either. Other religions have uh, done just as horrible things. So again, people pursuing the good mm -hmm. as they see it will do harm and, and do enormous amounts of harm there. And again, it's harder to deal with them than somebody who just wants your money. If they think that you're evil and they need to erase you from the planet to uh, make the world a better place, it's hard to make a deal with them. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, given you talk, we talk about some of the roots of evil, what are some of the, are there any antidotes or are there any things that we can keep in mind or try to focus on that might help us keep, keep from some of these evil impulses and situations? Well, uh, yes. Uh, I can answer that at several levels. There are things we can do at the social level. Let me start, though, at the personal level. Mm -hmm. um, Describe it at the personal level. Self-control is a big factor. I mean, people have a lot of violent impulses, and that they restrain them with with self-control. Uh, describe it this way: you start doing a book like this, and your question is, why is there evil? And you start, even if you look, just say, at laboratory studies in my field in social psychology, um, the causes start to add up. And seeing violent movies sometimes makes people more aggressive, or being in a room that's hot or being frustrated, you know, frustration causes aggression, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, things like that. Well, you start to add these up, and you say, well, there should be violence all the time. Who has not seen a violent movie? Who has mm -hmm. never been frustrated? Who has never been in a room that was uncomfortably hot? <laughs> uh, and so uh, you start with, mm -hmm. why is there evil? And pretty soon you come to, once you have all these answers, you have too many answers, and you say, well, mm -hmm. why is there so little evil? Why isn't there more than there is? Why haven't we all killed a dozen people by the time we're uh, uh, middle-aged mm -hmm. because we've all uh, experienced these provocations. And I think, you know, we may have had the impulse to kill well, that many people at the time, <laughs> but we usually restrain it. So, psychologically, what that means is that uh, these inner restraints, self-control, let's say you may feel mad, you may feel an urge to uh, whack somebody or even to kill somebody, mm -hmm. but you don't act on it. That becomes crucial. Um, this uh, important book by Godfredson and Hershey, two criminologists, uh, was called A General Theory of Crime. And of course, any social scientist looks at that and says, well, what is the general theory? Is it frustration, aggression, or is it poverty, or whatever? Their answer was self-control. They argued that what makes criminals criminal uh, is this lack of inner restraints. And they back it up very well, and they point out that criminals uh, they, they don't specialize like in the movies where they become an expert cat burglar or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to get arrested multiple times for different crimes. It's just sort of a general impulsive uh, disregard for the rules. Uh, criminals also tend to show bad self-control in legal spheres. They're more likely to smoke. Uh, they're more likely to uh, be involved in unplanned pregnancies. Uh, they're more likely to uh, have traffic problems and uh, unstable employment histories and, and, and things like that. So uh, they sort of show this pervasive pattern of low self-control. Uh, societies that breed high self-control will be more successful at restraining violent impulses. And so in terms of controlling violence, we'd like to eliminate the roots and eliminate the causes and, and so on, but that's going to be hard. I think in the short run, the best bet is to put your money on restraining them rather than making people somehow be all good and create some sort of person who will never have the impulse to uh, harm someone else. That's going to be awfully hard to achieve. Uh, but to say, well, getting mad and feeling like hitting someone, that's part of human nature. Mm -hmm. uh, what you need to do is be able to restrain yourself and not act on it. Um, so if we promote that, in various ways, you know, parents and schools and, uh, and just sort of culture. I mean, we live in a culture that's not, if anything, it's opposed to self-control. Mm -hmm. uh, advertising, you know, you can have it all now, indulge, get this, try this, uh, act on that impulse. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in a culture that glorifies it. Uh, our film heroes are people who get carried away uh, with things and caught up in things and uh, uh, even the police shows on television often show the police breaking the rules and uh, lying and fudging the evidence and uh, uh, tricking people into confessing and, and so on. Um, the idea that it's okay to break the rules 
Um, if it's for a good cause, well, that's that's again that's the mentality that produced the uh, the purges in Russia and uh, uh, even Nazi Germany and so on, um, doing bad things in the service of good ends. Uh, we live in a culture that glorifies that. Uh, the family breakdown uh, also, I think, inevitably uh, will take away from self-control in the kids. I shouldn't say inevitably, but as a general pattern. Um, all the large-scale studies, and you know, a specific case may be different, and certainly there are individuals, there are people with two parents or even more who grow up with poor self-control, and mm -hmm. there are children of single families who grow up with you know, remarkable effective discipline and can manage themselves wonderfully. But on average, people with only one parent uh, tend to show poor performance, uh, everything from getting their math homework done to uh, delinquency and crime, being overrepresented in prison and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, we want to increase divorce to give people more freedom to get out of an unhappy marriage and so on. Uh, and yet, it may be that the second parent can do a better job of watching the kid maintaining the surveillance and, and teaching self-discipline and self-control. Um, I mean, one of the big predictors of delinquency is being unsupervised versus having adults watching you when you're uh, in the sixth, seventh grade uh, era. You know, that predicts uh, delinquency a couple of years later. Uh, so again, having the adult around to remind you of the rules, to watch you and so on, that's what kids internalize. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where two parents probably can do a better job than one. Uh, it's not that single parents don't care or anything. Um, most of them care a great deal. Uh, it's just it's really hard work to get the food on the table and get the kid clothed and off to school on time and satisfy the basic needs uh, in terms of making sure that all the rules are carefully explained and all violations are punished and all successes rewarded and promises kept and so on. That's a little bit much to ask of the same caretaker who's doing the basic things. Uh, that's perhaps where... Uh, so anyway, we live in a family where... Uh, we live in a society where there's this family breakdown, more kids growing up with um, unstable uh, family households, step-parents who uh, don't really take over the disciplining because uh, you know they're not quite allowed to and Mm -hmm. They're sort of groping for what kind of relationship to form, or just having one parent and the kid ends up unsupervised a lot of time. That combined with the media, which tend to encourage uh, uh, indulgent sort of atmosphere, just do it, just enjoy it, have, you can have it all now, uh, buy, spend, enjoy. Uh, we're in a culture that uh, we can self-control, and we're going to pay for that with a higher rate of violence. I mean, has other things presumably that we like, the greater mm -hmm. freedom, and we enjoy our own indulgences. Uh, but uh, violence will be a factor there. Um, there are other things that a society can do. Um, Chiro's book on tyranny was a marvelous book. It was very comparative of different types of uh, tyrants and so on. It ends with a bunch of conclusions about uh, features of societies that uh, were more or less vulnerable to these repressive governments that victimize their citizens and so on. And putting the collective ahead of the individual is one of them. And so that's one thing where uh, in, in, in the US uh, we have a good uh, advantage that uh, we've always put individual rights over the, uh, uh, the collective and the benefit of everyone. Um, and that has, has weight. I mean, he's right. We, we don't have tyranny here. We don't have all that repressive a government that arrests people capriciously and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard, but that, that sort of view, uh, the, again, the repressive regimes, whether were Cambodia and, and, and others, putting the good of the many over the, the one, then the individual rights tend to get trampled, and then that tends to go bad. I mean, in a sense, it starts off with an ideal that we're going to do what's best for everybody, but uh, that, that goes bad. Yeah. What about just having a conscience, just saying this is right and this is wrong? Yes, well, that's to me, that's part of what I was including mm -hmm. under self-control. Really? Okay. Uh, the conscience makes you feel guilty when you do something wrong. It basically restrains you mm -hmm. <coughs> from doing things that you, you shouldn't. Uh, that's, too, a place where we're struggling in our society. Religion backs that up through uh, the schools and still that, too. But... Now, because of lawsuits and so on, the schools are afraid to discipline too aggressively. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't 
allow religion to play the role that it's played in other societies. We want to tolerate all religions equally. Uh, well, I mean, I'm for religious freedom. I sympathize with it, but we are going to pay a price for that. Uh, religion is a great force for good, for conscience, uh, for virtue. Um, and uh, if we weaken its hold on people, um, it, it will weaken these inner constraints. So it, it's good for us to feel guilty. Oh yes, it's good. Uh, guilt is a force for good in society. Guilt makes people behave better. Uh, it's too bad we've gotten this negative image of guilt, and uh, I could talk at some length about that, but that would be another conversation. Uh -huh. um, guilt is misunderstood, but uh, you don't want to have a roommate or an employee or a spouse who has no sense of guilt. <laughs> uh, guilt makes people be good to others, uh -huh. makes them make up for things they do wrong, makes them uh, refrain from hurting and exploiting others and try to live up to others' expectations. So it feels bad to the person who feels guilty, but uh, basically guilt is a very important force for good. And uh, evil and violence start where guilt stops mm. uh, with more guilt. And again, goes back to, I think, the sadism issue. People who <coughs> learn to become sadistic and learn to enjoy hurting others are people with a very weak sense of guilt and that someone with a strong conscience and a strong a guilt tendency would not go that route. And so, yes, I think we need guilt used in a constructive way. Um, guilt as opposed to shame is usually the distinction that's made where uh -huh. shame is that I'm a bad person, mm -hmm. uh, whereas guilt is that I did something specific wrong. Uh, and so guilt you can handle, you can make up for that, you can resolve not to do it again. Uh, and that restrains people from, from doing violent things. Yeah. Well, I think on that basis, the uh, understanding the, uh, the social need for, for self-control and guilt and these inner restraints, that's probably the place to put our money in, uh, in terms of restraining evil and uh, making a, a better, more virtuous future. Uh, we can work on social reform and other things as well. But uh, in the long run, I think uh, that's, that's the place to start, and that will do the most good in the, in the short run. Uh, thank you, and thank you to, uh, for joining us. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.